Morrison's march through the institutions uncovered, we have COVID, and Albo signs up to ambitious climate action. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and I have COVID-19. If I sound a bit weird, it's not just that I'm a poor sound technician, it's also (laughs) that I'm quite poorly. I think you do great, darling. (laughs) Joining me and carrying most of the show today is the great, the glorious, the also COVID-infected Van Batum, author of best-selling book, QAnon and Honor, Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. Uh, and a regular uh, contributor to the ABC Statewide Drive program, where yesterday, Van, you advocated, and I quote this from the presenter, you made the case for the renationalization of Qantas. I'm not the only person making the case for the renationalization of Qantas. As I explained on the show, when they were like, where are these calls coming from? I said, from literally everyone who sat in a Qantas lounge recently waiting for a delayed or cancelled flight or trying to work out where their baggage is. You know, there was a story about Qantas the other day that Qantas hadn't sorted out uh, the the baggage of a group of travellers who are heading to Britain. So they just sent all their baggage to Darwin. Right. And, like, I've been to Darwin and to Britain. I've spent considerable amounts of time in both. And, you know, that they're not two places that you mistake for one another. No, very, very different places. So, look, there's a lot of... Uh, and we've talked about the situation with Qantas before and, and, and both on the week on Wednesday and the weekend wrap. You know, I've we've raised again and again and again the performance of Alan Joyce, his unlawful actions. Uh, well, as CEO, the unlawful actions of the company uh, that he runs going unpunished and, in fact, rewarded. Morrison handing out billions of dollars. Two billion dollars of JobKeeper they got during the pandemic. And they illegally fired 2,000 baggage handlers. Illegally, the federal court found they had illegally fired those people. And uh, a TWU survey I saw, uh, I can't remember if it was yesterday or the day before, said that uh, over half of those people, those Australian workers, are still without uh, ongoing permanent work. Uh, And this is now some years later. Well, this is the thing that Qantas um, appealed the verdict of the federal court that said that those workers should be compensated for illegally, let's repeat that again, illegally losing their jobs. Yeah. But who loses out? Unlawfully, I think. Unlawfully. You know, they, they, the, it's not only the workers who suffer, it's the people separated from their baggage who are trying to get to London to find out their suitcases on holiday in. And and we're starting to see how how class interaction works in this country in some ways, right? I'm so into you. Where the working class are made to suffer in order to prop up the profits and the bonuses of people like Alan Joyce. How much money does he make a year? Oh, millions. I mean, he bought like a, he bought like a, I can't remember if it was a 12 or $20 million home recently in Sydney. I mean, either way, that's a lot of money. Uh, And, so, you know, working class people are made to prop up the profits for people like Alan Joyce. And then the service, the service delivery, the services and the products that the middle class so enjoy that are created by the working class suffer as a result. And when that starts to happen, you then start to have knock-on effects to the whole economy as well. Businesses can't get where they need to be. People don't want to travel for work, let alone for holidays. 
Then there's knock-on effects in tourism. Like there's a whole series, a cascading series of impacts, which is why countries support airlines in the first place, which is why in a lot of countries there are government stakes in airlines, airlines industry is highly regulated because it's a key part of the economy functioning. And let's make this point clear. Part of the reason that Morrison gave to justify his largesse to Qantas and Alan Joyce was that we needed a functioning uh, airline sector. Yes, therefore we should buy one. Or- so, so I mean, Van, but the 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 it's just the tip of the iceberg because as we've discovered this week, and as story as, uh, after story has come out this week, the the Morrison march through the institutions wasn't just limited to large S in the form of taxpayer handouts to Alan Joyce or car park operators or the bodgy bodgy contracts we've talked about before in defence when Peter Dutton was defence minister or in home affairs when Peter Dutton was home affairs minister. I'm sensing a bit of a pattern here about Peter Dutton, but it goes beyond that too, doesn't it? Because it's not just contracts, it's actually the institutions themselves where government still has some control or sway that Morrison has essentially marched through and installed his own uh, ideological lens. Yeah, I just want to give everybody a a bit of background on the term, the long march through to the institutions, because it's one that Ben and I refer to a lot. Um, It was something coined by the intellectuals of my own ideological tradition. Um, Antonio Gramsci, who's the uh, Italian Marxist, (laughs) who did his best writing in prison, who's just in prison all the time, Um, Gramsci talked about how it's necessary for political movements to to they maintain themselves by taking control of a cultural apparatus and the reason why you had oppressive systems like aristocracy monarchy and various forms of authoritarian tyranny dominate you know communities nations for so long was because they owned what Althusser called the ideological state apparatus you know in, traditionally that's the that's the uh, I mean there are different forms of an ideological state apparatus but it's the priesthood it's in, in some societies it's the media like you know these massive cultural institutions yeah. that well in Australia you could say the ABC SBS are part of cultural institutions yeah they absolutely they and they're the cultural institutions that government control um, what what people like Gramsci and his um, his sort of intellectual inheritors, people like Rudy Dutschke in Germany and Abby Hoffman, who's my hero in the United States, started to look at in the 1960s was this idea of making a long march, which is obviously from Mao. Mao went village to village, you know, turning, yeah. you know, not entirely. Mao's long march was not entirely uh, beneficial to all who participated, let's put it that way. Yeah, that's like you can admire the ambition but not the results yeah. in that case. Yeah. Ben and I are certainly not Maoists, um, given the whole, you know, famine and mass death thing and authoritarianism, which is our enemy. But the long march through the institutions was an exhortation of progressive, like libertarian leftists, that rather than participate in urban guerrilla warfare, which notably some factions did in in, um, in the West in the 60s, like the Baden-Meinhof gang in Germany and the Weather Underground in the United States, who, you know, participated mm. in terrorism, mm. um, that what, you know, the, the Red left- Brigades. In- Red Brigades in Italy, 
and they were all over the West. They were always small and not very successful, I yeah. think, is the, is the punchline there. Um, uh, what the left should do is make a long march, like pursue their revolutionary activity through institutions by getting involved in the structures of culture, you know, by becoming um, – by becoming researchers and academics and artistic practitioners and media makers and create channels of culture. That's why and forming bands and you playing folk music. I mean, these are all institutions. The institution of music mm. is one that you can engage in. And of course that's what happened in the 1960s and happened, you know, not only in music, but in Hollywood and literature and all these things. That's but, the long march through the institutions. But of course, Van, now it also refers to the fact that there are many government institutions ranging from things like the ABC and SBS through to the Pork Council. Like, you know, the government has a role in so many elements of day-to-day life. Do you know there's a tripe council? Well, there you go. See? I love the fact there's a tripe. No, tripe board. There's a tripe board. board. Yeah. Well, I mean, these are, you know, and you can go online. There's There's a government website where it literally lists the hundreds and hundreds of government organisations and departments and boards and statutory authorities and all the rest of it. And and it's not just the, at a federal level, they have them at state too, but what what's coming out now is that over the last decade, but particularly in February and March of this year, when Morrison knew there was going to be an election, they were making appointments to these institutions. Some yeah. of them, not necessarily people who you would go, oh, that's clearly a bipartisan choice. Yeah, look, and in terms of in terms of the left-wing trajectory, like the, the people I mentioned before, like Rudy Dutschka, they talked about get like get involved, like don't throw bombs on the street, mm. don't get mad, get elected, which is the old slogan of the women's electoral lobby. Like mm. don't stay on the outside, get on the inside and bring your politics and your experiences to the process of change. And you can see that across so many movements and call for diversity in those things. What the coalition have done is adopt the strategy of the modern left, um, and but in order to create a bulwark against pro- progressivism and inclusive social change. And there has been like board stacking and the appointment of people who are frankly uh, n- not who you would consider bipartisan or politically neutral or objectively qualified appointments to various cultural institutions. And the fact that various institutions were aggressively stacked with coalition appointees before the election is really concerning. Before we got down with the got down with the microphone, you and I were talking about how the coalition knew they were going to call the election for May, so brought the budget forward. Yeah, that's right. So they knew what the timetable was. They knew that potentially they were reading polls like everybody else. They knew that they were in trouble, even though they'd had that miracle victory in 2019. But even though they made that budget adjustment, they 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 have no pretext. They have nothing to hide behind in terms of stacking as many boards as possible. Because what's come out is that they made a number – of appointments, made a number of appointments uh, during that time and reappointments that didn't need to be made. And, you know, there's been criticism of of that um, quite rightly because even though – and some of them, some of the appointments you go, actually, that person might be quite good for that job. You know, there are some people where you go, actually, that person – 
has values that align to the kind of work that that is or they have experience there, but it puts a, it puts a gray cloud over the appointment um, because not all of them are like that because some of them are, in fact, quite ideological appointments, uh, whether they were made in February, March or earlier, as we found out with the RBA this week. So there's this amazing piece out in Crikey this week that is not behind a paywall, which is about the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is, as you can imagine, a very popular topic in this house. And it is extraordinary who is on that board, quite irrespective of who these people are individually, and the article makes the point that they all have very impressive CVs. This is the the Reserve Bank sets monetary policy in this country, which is kind of a big deal because it determines the conditions of, uh, Ben, the entire economy. And on that board, there are two active members of the Centre for Independent Studies, which is Not independent. Not independent. It's a, like- right-wing Milton Friedman shill fan club. It's literally the organisation that toured Milton Friedman to this country when he was still alive, although has he ever died as long as neoliberalism continues? That's the question. There's a member of the Menzies Institute. Do you know who else is a member of the Menzies Institute? Oh, Peter Credlin. And the Menzies Institute, let me tell you, represents her politics entirely. There's someone from the National Farmers Federation who, of course, have been – a major neoliberal organisation in yeah. terms of economic policy for some decades, yeah. although there are some very good people involved in that organisation in other capacities. Very into free trade. The very into free, very into free trade in supporting the Joe for PM campaign. If anybody <laughs> remembers that, we all got a sticker in the newspaper. And, um, and there's someone else from the Property Council, which, of course, represents – the landowning classes well, in this country. Also, you know that that one strikes me as very strange because the the primary or the most the most publicly uh, aware function of the RBA or the thing that people most associate with the RBA is the setting of interest rates. Yeah, and the Property Council. You would think its members have a significant interest in. The setting of interest rates. I must correct myself. I do have COVID, everybody. Ben and I are a little bit slow on it. They may be a former member of the property council. Oh, okay. All right. But certainly that suggests that they are values aligned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would think that that's a thing. So, I mean, the Crikey article is interesting too because it makes the point that in the past you had representatives from the trade union movement. You had Bob Hawke. You had Bill Kelty on the RBI. And, there, and there's now calls to have Sally McManus uh, leader of the trade union movement in this country. And, of course, if you're not a member of your union and you want to see more worker representation on government boards, corporate boards, the RBA, uh, more worker voice, uh, then join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, you can join. You can add your voice to the chorus that's calling for someone like Sally because, of course, uh, the the governor of the Reserve Bank has come out now and said that workers should take a pay cut yeah. to curb inflation. And you would think that with that board, that was a relatively easy thing for him to do because that board is going to support that, right? There's nobody because on that like board Because that's like neoliberal going, orthodoxy. Neoliberal yeah. orthodoxy, by the way, everyone, is like workers are to blame. We must smash unions and cut wages and conditions. Like that's literally what neoliberals have been arguing for 40 years. There should be less labour protections. There should be no environmental regulations. It should be an absolute chaotic free-for-all because somehow rich people just sort everything out. Yes, let's march back to aristocracy, everyone. Like it is just, I've, I've got to say that RBA, 
day piece particularly stuck in my craw because of the revelation by Mr. Benjamin Clark, its author, that the RBA has making a has been making a twenty thousand dollar a year donation to neoliberal right-wing think tank, the Centre of Independent Studies, since 2006. And it's like that's not a neutral organisation. That's not economic and analysis and services. That is an absolute, it's an ideological spivot. Like I just couldn't believe it. I almost fell off my chair. It's like have you read anything about the CIS? Have you seen the papers they put out, the positions they argue? It's just right-wing guff. Well, it, it it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal position for the governor to take. Yeah, hey, um, Philip Lowe, you could give twenty thousand dollars a year to the week on Wednesday, <laughs> rabid leftists that we are. Like, just hand over the money because we know heaps about economics. You know, like Ben's a very smart guy. He understands that uh, wages. I'm oh, sorry, I can't do it. I'm wages, too wages only increase or put pressure. On inflation, when wage growth is greater than inflation plus productivity growth, you know I practice and, this several times, but the sinuses <laughs> are just not helping. And and the reality is, you will not find an economist in this country who will say to you that whatever measure of inflation you choose to use, and whatever measure of productivity growth you choose to use, and whatever measure of wage growth you choose to use, that wages are currently growing by more than inflation plus productivity. And in fact, for a long time in this country, ooh, better part of a decade, funny that, wages have been growing by less than inflation plus productivity. Australian productivity levels are up 2.8%, inflation 5.1%. That means there's significant headroom, even with all people, oh, the minimum wage went up 5%. Yeah, it did. It did. And it was good to see because for those workers who are going to get 5.2%, that means their wages won't go backwards. They won't go backwards. They're not getting a huge pay increase. They're not putting inflationary pressure into the system. And, you know, what's really frustrating is that the economists know this, right? But there's a neoliberal orthodoxy that dominates the debate, dominates the board of the RBA, dominates most of the television presentations that we get on the economy as well. Oh, anytime there's a wage increase, that's inflationary. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. See, I think we've just earned $20,000 a year for 16 years. What I'd like to see is I'd like to see a Reserve Bank governor come out and say, you know what we need? We need companies to stop taking so much profit out of the system. They need to be putting that money back into the pockets of workers so that there's greater demand, so that there's greater capacity to to actually spend in the economy. I'd like to see a Reserve Bank governor come out and say, this profiteering has to stop. No more share buybacks. Invest in productive equipment. Invest in productive technology. Invest in the skills and training of your workforce. This profiteering that's happening at the expense of the Australian economy can no longer be worn by the backs of Australian workers. And that's what Phil Lowe has asked millions of Australians to do by saying they should take a pay cut. And why is he allowed to do that? Why is he pushed out of the media to do that? Because he has a board full of Friedmanite neoliberal spivs. And that's why I'm 100% behind the campaign to put a proper trade unionist or labour economist, someone who cares about it, understands how the economy works from a worker's perspective rather than 
from the property council's perspective? <laughs> you know, Ben and I, we're very, very sick. Like, we're very sick. Guys, we're not going to lie. You can tell from our voices and the fact that I just went off on one about Antonia Gramsci and Rudy Duchka. <sighs> But it's like, yeah, we got so sick. Ben started doing impersonations of the Bank. <laughs> that wasn't in the symptom book. <laughs> Look, it's interesting because it's not just it's not just the RBA. I mean, the RBA. No, it's everything. Is- it's the Australia Council. Like, the, as far as I can work out, the only actual working artist on the Australia Council, I'm happy to be proved wrong, but having a bit of a glance, the only working artist is Tina Arena, who's been living in France for some time. Okay. But the Australia Council is supposed to set cultural policy. Do you think perhaps some culture makers might be useful? I mean, there are some curators. I mean, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But what on earth? Like. Yeah, look, there are. And, and, and you read every day, we read more and more stories about just turning over the rocks and the spiders and centipedes come scuttling out and it's going to take time you know a decade of a decade of a government that was really only interested in its own march through the institutions and what it was getting out of being in government uh, not only not only is there then the deliberate damage or the deliberate poor appointments to undo. There's also just the neglect, right? And sometimes those two things will intersect and it will be hard. But we have some good news about what the Albanese Labor government has been able to do. And we'll finish off the show with that. But before we do, we do, I do want to talk a little bit about COVID because obviously you and I both have it. Yes, we're so sick. Guys, this is going to be a short episode because we're not we're not okay. No. Like we are. No one, you know, I spent a year under covering QAnon being told the pandemic was a hoax and coronavirus was just like a fever dream for Bill Gates to keep us in chains with robot dogs and, you know, the rest of the garbage they go on with. And it's just like we have the, the illness. We're living through it. Like Ben and I had an extraordinary run. You know, yeah. and but some people on their second, third um, infection. A COVID. friend of mine in in Britain has had it four times. Yeah, sure. And it is absolutely devastating. We are as sick as dogs. I can't hear from my left ear and have been able to. I've lost my sense of smell, which is terrible. I'm I just started losing my sense of taste completely as well. So it'll be you know all those things that I should eat and don't. It's going to be spinach and sprout central around here. But I mean, it is just shocking. We are. We'd just like to thank our friends and neighbours who have yeah. been dropping everything from medicine to fresh bananas to soothers to tea and things and chocolates on our doorstep because and, they're the best people on earth. We love you all. And can I can I just say too? You know, we talk on this show, and you and I we talk a lot about the problems and the neoliberalism and and how it has eroded certain elements of our economy, certainly and our cultural identity. But I think, you know, when when the chips are down, you see uh, people's true colours and it's been amazing. Every person who has reached out to us, um, you know, online, over the phone, in person, you know, we, we've had people come from other towns to bring us things and stand at our gate and just wave and say hello and make sure we're okay. Um, people who are hours away offer to drive and drop stuff off. Um, you know, and and I know we're not the only ones who've experienced this because you see it every time there's a flood or a fire 
or any kind of disaster in this country, people are good, decent, and want to help each other. And and really, it's been very touching. And I want to thank everybody um, who has who has done that for us and for other people. Because I mean, Absolutely. Ben and I are pretty comfortable, but other people aren't. Yeah, and it's that generosity of people that's helped so many get through the crisis. You know, fundamentally, Ben and I are socialists because we believe if you give people an opportunity to do good, they'll do good. Absolutely. You know, like overwhelmingly, that's the case. And if you create opportunities for people to do good, here's some news, it marginalises the people who want to do bad. Yeah, and look, I think it's really important, um, you know, obviously it's front and centre for us at the moment because we have COVID, but COVID never went away. No. It, it, it became, <laughs> Clearly not. It became sort of less of an impact. More people were getting it, but hospitalizations were down. Deaths were kind of down. Well, those trends have changed. And I was shocked to learn, you know, because obviously when we got COVID, I thought, oh, I better check and see what else is going on with this, right? And literally between Monday and today, there's been nearly a half a percentage point increase in the number of hospital beds that are taken up by COVID. So it's gone from 45 to 4.9% of all hospital beds in, in Australia are occupied by somebody with COVID. Now, that's thousands and thousands of hospital ad- admissions. You know, the, the trend on the number of deaths is going up, the trend on the number of cases is going up, and the trend on hospitalizations is going up. I wish you hadn't led with deaths. Well, I'm sorry, but that's that's the reality, right? Oh and, no, look, it is. And I, can I just I just want to admit this is really frightening. And it and it and it makes and and it makes more sense when you think about this other stat. So you and I are both triple vaxxed, and we know some people who are now on their fourth vax because they're eligible. But there are there are still thirty one percent, nearly one, nearly one in three Australians who have not had a third dose. Get your third dose, people. Nearly, Seriously. Nearly one in three who haven't had it. Now, we've both had our third dose and we're quite sick. You know, like this isn't, I don't feel like, you know, uh, you know, like I'm trailing off on sentences, right? Like I just can't operate properly. Unless you're talking about the Reserve Bank, <laughs> then you're just dead on because that's who you are inside. Inside. But it is, it is something that as winter continues, as the flu kicks in as well. Which we also had. Hooray! People are going to be getting sick. We are going to have to look after each other. We are going to have to come together. And there will be, you know, like I am wearing a mask now wherever I go because, sure, I'll be immune and you'll be immune for the next 12 weeks, but I don't want to pick it up and then give it to somebody else again. Like I don't want to be responsible for, for spreading it. And we need to think like that again. We need to... I'm not saying we go back to lockdowns. I'm not, you know, there'll be people, oh, they're talking about doing lockdown. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm saying basic, simple things we can do. Wear a mask indoors. Wear a mask on public transport. You know, be be extra vigilant when you're around vulnerable people. Wash your hands regularly. You know, cough into your arm, cough into your elbow, not into your hand. Mm. You know, yeah, participate in social distancing. Yeah, social prioritize distance. venues that are properly vent- ventilated. Do you know? I think I'm trying to work out where I got it, and I'm pretty sure I got it because I ate I ate some crackers on a train. Right. So I had my mouth open eating crackers on a train, and I think. 
That's where I got it. And I've got to say, I've been catching the train. That's That was like on a regional train where they sell you crackers. I wasn't like, yeah, yeah, ha, yeah. ha, ha, I'm on V-Line. Watch me <sighs> in this cracker. That wasn't what was going on. But there have been people on V-Line trains. There have been people on metro trains where you are still supposed to be wearing a mask in the state of Victoria. In other states, I think there are different rules who are not wearing masks. And, you know, it's a small thing. It's a small thing. Yeah, but it could stop you getting coronavirus or giving it to somebody else. It could literally save someone's life. Oh, look, and I've got to say, you know, I get that masks are uncomfortable. I'm not a huge fan of wearing a mask. Frankly, I would rather get through life without going, have you got your mask? You know, every time you leave the house. But I have coronavirus, and can I just tell anybody who hasn't had it that the discomfort of wearing a mask is something you long for when you have COVID, when yeah. your ear is gummed up. And Ben had to um, do an emergency run because you are allowed to leave the house for medical reasons. To and it was get before me- I was diagnosed. Yeah, to get some steroidal spray because my throat was seizing up the other night and I was facing the prospect of going to bed not knowing if my throat was going to close at night time. And it was just like, wow, I would give anything to just be wearing a mask now. Like that would be amazing. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie, I wore a mask in the car. I didn't get out of the car. They dropped the thing through the window. I wore the mask the whole time. So that the so that the healthcare worker who provided us the medicine that we needed to be okay, so my throat wouldn't close up, would also be okay because that, frankly, is one of the big risks here. This has always been one of the big risks with COVID, and sometimes I think people forget we have a limited number of healthcare workers. These are highly trained people. There is no such thing as an unskilled job, and that's double, triple, quadruply so when it comes to healthcare. When a healthcare worker goes down, we can't just grab the next person and go, oh, come and help in this hospital, come and help in this medical center, come and help in this pharmacy. You don't want somebody who doesn't understand the difference between drugs handing out drugs. That's a recipe for disaster. So it's important that we keep a lid on COVID and wearing a mask and doing the simple things. And please. Simple, simple things. You know, somebody was saying to me online yesterday, yeah, I had kind of a nasty reaction to the my two first shots, so I'm not getting the third one. And I was just like, are, are you completely mad? If you had an adverse reaction to the shots, let me tell you what coronavirus will do. It will kill you. I mean, Ben and I are in really good health, you know, and – I'm militant about my diet. Like I'm one of those kind of people. I lead a a sinless life. I have no comorbidities and I am absolutely wrecked. And this is the thing, the virus keeps evolving and your only protection is vaccination. I've realised in many cases we're preaching to the converted, but if I'm preaching to one person who was like, yeah, I just don't know if the third injection is really me, like do not be crazy. Get the jab. Yeah, get the jab, get the jab, get the jab. Oh, God, I just, this is. Look, uh, we, we need to move, we need to. We need to move on. It's hard to think about anything else yeah, when you're this because sick. we need to go and lay down again. <laughs> um, uh, there is There has been some good news. You know, we, we haven't talked a lot about the energy crisis on this show, um, but, of course, uh, you can hear Van talk about the need to nationalise the energy uh, grid. Yes, I, I am right. On um, on Statewide Drive ABC. We'll post a link wherever we post this. Yeah, it'll be uh, from 38 minutes 30. You can hear Van talk about that on, on that particular episode from Tuesday. Um, and, of course, 
I fully support that concept as well. Um, public assets in public hands is uh, absolutely vital for ensuring uh, public service. So there has been some good news. Obviously, uh, the the Bowen and the Albanese Labor government have seemingly resolved the market created problems in the energy uh, system by suspending parts of the market. So that's good. Um, but taking a more long-term view, the good news there is that we are signed up to a 43% emissions reduction target by 2030, and that means huge amounts of renewable energy coming into our system, improving our transmission, improving reliability, ending the dependence on these foreign-owned, privatised coal generators that they take offline whenever it suits them to generate more profit. And, and of course, the best news of all, maybe we won't all boil alive on the only habitable planet within our lifetimes star travel from where, where, where we are. We also highly recommend the Foundation series speaking of star travel, which has been keeping Ben and I going. Um, yes, and I just want everybody to appreciate who was responsible for the 43% cross-sector commitment to the 43% um, emissions target, which is a com- – so who was in the room? Environmentalists were in the room. Environmentalists were represented by the Australian Conservation Foundation, yep. who are quite full on about this stuff. Um Sally McManus, the leader of the union movement, was in the room, you know, representing the workers of Australia and the people who tend to get displaced when, um, you know, climate policy is done badly. In the room, Innes Willicks from the Australian Industry Group, not the kind of individual who anybody would accuse of being, you know, any kind of progressive revolutionary. The dog is bumping the microphone with his cute little face. Um, so you had stakeholders from the environment movement, from representing workers, representing business interest, wasn't pulled together by a coalition government. It wasn't pulled together by a minor party. It wasn't just one of those parties. It was the Australian Labor Party who did that. So we are moving towards meaningful climate action with greater ambition for bigger targets, bringing stakeholders together, that is what the Labor Party does. And it's been good to see because it is it is the Hawke template. It is how do we work together to achieve goals in the common interest of the Commonwealth of Australia and its people. And and that that photo, uh, which you know I've shared uh, on social media a few times and lots of people have, where Anthony Albanese is signing the, the document that he's going to send off, I think, to the UN or, or the, uh, the COP body. Um, uh, we should know what it's called. We went to the Yeah, Paris we did. Conference. We went to the COP21 in Paris. But there- <coughs> did you hear that, everybody? Did we drop that in enough? We got souvenirs. <laughs> we got, like, recycled bags and yeah. recycled cups. Everything and was recycled. Everything was recycled. But Remember that recycling toilet? That was, was the, an experience. It was the, it was the, the whole- a uh, crowd of key stakeholders who were in the room who have, to be fair, and, you know, National Farmers Fed, I know we gave them some stick about the RBA board position and I stand by that, but, the, you know, they've been um, being part of those discussions now for some time. Yeah, you but, can't lie to a farmer about climate change. Because <laughs> you cannot do it. And, and, it, and it's the same with people like the Aluminum Council, right, or the Aluminium Council. Aluminium. How, it's not called a, where are you from, Baltimore? <laughs> aluminum? But 
you know, they they have an interest in how these things are going to work because they want to produce here. They want to they want to actually have product to sell, and they need reliable, affordable, renewable sources of energy. So having those stakeholders come together, and and I have to say, behind the scenes for a long time under the the coalition's um, ignorance, the layer of coalition ignorance that existed around climate. Willful ignorance. Yeah. Some would even call it denial. Yeah. There the were stakeholders, even AIG and the Aluminium Council, coming together to work through what was possible, what was achievable, and trying to get governments at all levels and oppositions to adopt more ambition on climate change, policies that would create renewable, reliable, cheaper energy that would create jobs in regions that would be displaced by the shutdown of coal or, or the gradual transition from gas. And, and yet Morrison and his government had no interest in it. We were less than a month into Albo being in power, Labor being in power, and those stakeholders were brought into the room and told, thank you so much for the work you've been doing. Congratulations. It's paid off. We now have a proper, ambitious, achievable target on emissions reduction. Lots of people will say it doesn't go far enough. Some people will say it doesn't, it goes too far. And you know what? That's the Hawk model. That's what Labor does. There will be people at either end who are unhappy. Mm, but the momentum is in the middle. That's right. Like the momentum is with the majority. You've got to move and the if majority. You have, yeah, you've got to move the majority. I, Ben and I, to, I love how I, I'm under the influence of coronavirus and really in a left ideological theory place today. <laughs> ben and I are not what are known as vanguardist socialists. Vanguardist socialists are like, you need like highly educated and middle class people to lead the working class, like a small cadre of incredibly educated people who gener- generally are the children of the ruling class. It's amazing. It's just this massive coincidence because poor working class people are too stupid to work things out for themselves is the theory. Like we loathe that yeah. tendency. We are anti-vanguardists. We do not believe you need a small ultra-leftist revolutionary cadre. We believe the cadre is the people and we are more than a – we build majorities. We are majoritarian because we are democratic socialists and democracy is about government by majority. And, and you know, oh, but Labor didn't win a majority. Well, it won a majority of seats. And that's how our democracy is established. Won the biggest majority of seats since 2013, baby. And and the next biggest party is some 20-plus seats away from it in terms of numbers in the House of Representatives because the Liberal Party, the actual party of Menzies, is a shambles and a rabble <laughs> and could only govern in coalition with the National Party under the the absolute nonsensical ramblings of Barnaby Joyce. Even in opposition, they're going to maintain that coalition. Why? Menzies would – I just can't wrap my head around it. Anyway, the coalition is going to stay Menzies knew conservatives will follow liberals, <clears throat> but liberals will not always follow conservatives. As we've seen at the last election, Labor is the only party – in this country. That's prepared to speak to people they don't even like. And to govern in everyone's interests. Yeah. As 
the only party of government. As you and I like to say, there are really only two political parties in Australia. There is the Labor Party and there is everyone else. That's right. Labor and non-Labor. Yeah, and we don't mind being overt about that because, like, we think we've got everything to be proud of. We live in a country which has set a 43% emissions reduction target by 2030 and has scope for greater ambition and a broad coalition of people who represent the majority, as one should, in our democracy, have, you know, have come into the fold to make that happen. Like, we're incredibly proud to be part of a movement that can achieve that, especially one that achieves that explicitly on behalf of working people and their trade unions. Absolutely. Look, that's the good news. There's so many other things going on we're somewhat conscious of, but Corona has- But you want to know, like, we were going to talk about all kinds of things and, you know, we just can't. We are sick. So, I'd say we're sick as dogs, but he's fine. Yeah. He's literally on my lap, has not left my side since I got sick. So you can check out last weekend's weekend wrap where Van and I were, were still probably a little more uh, lucid than we are now. <laughs> Hopefully by this Sunday, the worst of this will have passed and we'll be lucid enough to do a, a, a full-length feature of the, the week on Wednesday on a Sunday. Um, and certainly, if by next Wednesday we're not back on our feet, I'm writing a letter of complaint to the World Health Organization. Oh, God. Oh, just, or both. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but we have to, speaking of cadres before, we have our own cadre. We do. Of supporters. We have the cadre of the people. Who we always like to make sure we acknowledge. And anybody who's who says, oh, look, is there anything I can do for you guys because you're sick? And it's like our neighbours have us totally covered. So, but if you must make a gesture, if you want to make a one-off donation to our Buy Me A Coffee account, if you want to, if you have the capacity to, and we spend all that money on the show and promoting the show. Um, can I just say this week the the weekend wrap beat Steve Bannon's podcast. Oh, which made us very relieved. If you've read my book, QAnon and On, you'll understand why betting Steve Bannon is such a wonderful so achievement. So all our Cadre supporters contribute $20 a month to help us continue to beat Steve Bannon. We also have Extending the Reach supporters who contribute $10 a month and our Buck a Week members who, like the uh, name suggests, contribute $5 a month. Uh, and then we have people who just make one-off contributions or occasional contributions, and it all goes into making sure that when people are looking for news, looking for information. Done by two people with coronavirus and their dog. Yes. That, they, that they get ads for the week on Wednesday and can hear these messages. So a huge gonna- thank you to our cadre van. At Jane Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bromman, Punchdown Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, No Relation, Richard Sands, I'm Not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I Don't Have Twitter, My Name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Nerissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sh- 
Sharp and Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extending the Reach supporters van. Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, Mizritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Vicky Hanna at Knot. Love your work, love yours too, baby. At Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannam, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Heinen at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Alien and Andrew, Ivish Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Kim Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson and R- Renee McGee. You are wonderful and I do apologise if I stumbled on any names. I've got to say doing this with COVID ups the difficulty challenge just a bit. You did a great job, darling. And of course, you can hear Van on ABC Drive's Tuesday of uh, this week. Uh, 38 minutes and 30, Van comes on. I will share the link to our Buy Me A Coffee page. You'll be able to pick up a link there. Uh, so that's where we will share that. I've also got a Guardian piece about Anastasia Palaszczuk coming out this week, I think, as well. Fantastic. Which, yeah, I'd love you to read it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'd love that. And we will share that on our Facebook, Twitter, and everywhere you can possibly find it. We will have it available for you. Hopefully we're feeling better. Hopefully you're well wherever you are in Australia or around the world. Don't get coronavirus. Don't get coronavirus. Don't get it. Stay safe. Don't stay get well. it. It's not cool. Keep yourself safe. Do whatever you can. And until next time, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. We love you guys. Thank you for sticking with us. Bye. Bye.